The Interchange is brought to you by AES Energy Storage, a pioneering and world-leading storage developer and now energy storage solution provider. We are entering a new era, the electrification of everything, and the grid needs to catch up. That means making it into a more distributed, flexible, and cleaner network. AES Energy Storage is helping unlock the true power of the electricity system with Advanceon. Advanceon is a battery-based energy storage platform that helps utilities modernize their power systems rapidly and at a much lower cost than traditional infrastructure. AES brings 30 years of power sector experience to the storage industry, delivering the most reliable, safest, and best-performing storage solutions. Advanceon can handle any application, and it's always instantly available, without the need to burn fuel or invest in expensive peaking generation or other infrastructure to meet flexibility or reliability needs. It's time to unlock the full potential of the electric power system. That means building a new energy network, transforming the grid with energy storage, accelerating renewables, and electrifying everything. That is the vision and mission of AES Energy Storage. Learn more about AES's offerings by visiting aesenergystorage.com interchange. That's aesenergystorage.com slash interchange. This is the Interchange Conversations on the Global Energy Transformation from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey, GTM's Editor-in-Chief, joined in Boston by my co-host and our Senior VP, Shale Khan. Hello, Shale. Hey, Stephen. We're revisiting a pretty important topic that has been batted around in solar. Is the technology only for the rich? Um, Shale and our guest, Power Scout CEO Attila Toth, use their analytical prowess to try to answer that question. And we're going to clarify the class-based perceptions of solar in this episode. Before we do that, it's time to dig into our reading list. Shale and I are today reading the exact same thing. A juicy piece of legalese from the newly bankrupt solar manufacturer, Suniva. What caught your attention about this document, Shale? Well, the headline that most people picked up on is that Suniva is filing for bankruptcy, which is news in and of itself. But that is not what is big a big deal about this from a broader perspective. The reason this is a big deal is that in its bankruptcy filing, Suniva basically stated that it got some financing to take it through bankruptcy. And that financing is contingent on Cineva filing what's called a Section 201 petition. Now, this is a little wonky, but stay with me because it's going to be really important. Section 201 is a section of the Trade Act of 1974. It's a mechanism for the U.S. to impose remedies when a domestic industry has suffered what's called serious injury. And Basically, what it means is that Saniva intends to, but has not yet, file a petition that if it went successfully through the International Trade Commission and to the president's desk, and we can come back to what that means, uh, it could impose any number of different kinds of remedies from new import tariffs to volume maximums to minimum prices. Um, and it could do so not just on China or Taiwan, which is what happened in the last solar trade case that was filed by Solar World, but this time theoretically could be applied to the entire world. So this is going to be an early test of trade policy in the Trump administration. It will be a big deal for the cost of solar in the U.S. So if Suniva ultimately files this thing, uh, it's going to be huge news. Right. So uh, there are a lot of really important pieces of this. One is that the process is a lot faster 
than the uh, tariff creation process we saw at the Commerce Department from 2011 through 2014. Yeah. That was a long four, three, four-year process. Well, We're yeah, looking you, at 120 you, days here. Sort of. So the, the first process took a little bit longer, took more like nine months to a year to get sort of preliminary tariffs imposed. This is somewhat of an accelerated process. So the way that it works is if Cineva files, the International Trade Commission immediately looks at it. Within 120 days, so within four months, they have to decide whether uh, the U.S. industry has suffered serious injury. And sometimes they can extend that out to five months if they need to. And serious injury seems like a pretty high bar. It is, and in fact, it is a higher bar than uh, what was set in the other type of petition, the type that Solar World filed. Which was what? Which was called material injury. So this is serious injury. It's a higher bar. So within... Four months and potentially five months if they extend it, the ITC would have to give a thumbs up or thumbs down on injury. Then by 180 days, so six months from the initial filing of the petition, if the ITC finds serious injury, they have to issue recommendations about what remedies could be imposed. And so that's where they could you know, explore a bunch of different options that I mentioned before. Those recommendations go directly to the desk of the president. And then the president has, as I understand it, a lot of leeway in determining exactly what he ends up doing about that. He could do nothing. He could accept all the remedies as proposed by the ITC, or he could change them entirely. They go directly to the desk of a president who, as a presidential candidate, uh, talked a lot about China as a currency manipulator, has been very skeptical of global free trade agreements, and has specifically cited Section 201 uh, as a possible way of enforcing, uh, you know, trade restrictions. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, Donald Trump himself has never probably mentioned Section 201. I'd be surprised if he ever heard of it in the first place. But it is true that in the trade policy uh, document that came out in early March from the Trump administration, uh, there were a bunch of sort of trade remedies that were noted specifically, one of them being Section 201. So this, I should note, you know, the last time this Section 201 was invoked was in 2002 in the steel industry. So it's pretty rare, but I guess not a big surprise in the broader landscape that it would be uh, introduced or at least that it would be invoked in the, the Trump administration. Yeah. And the scope of this is really large, as you said. So in the bankruptcy declaration document that was filed this week in um, in the Delaware court, the chief restructuring officer basically says that this you know, this could apply to South Korea, to Germany, to all sorts of European countries. Like this is a potentially global remedy, not just regional specific. Right. And, you know, stepping back, the reason why that's what Cineva wants to do requires just a brief history lesson for anybody who hasn't been paying attention to trade and solar, which is that Solar World filed this other kind of trade petition, an anti-dumping countervailing duty petition in 2011, that did result in import tariffs on Chinese solar cells in 2012. Uh, So then a lot of Chinese manufacturers turned out to be shipping through Taiwan. So they, and they, they would make the cells in Taiwan and assemble them into modules in China. So then Solar World filed a follow-up petition to expand the scope to Taiwan. That was largely successful. So then what ended up happening is most 
most of the imports that are coming into the U.S. now are not coming from either China or Taiwan, many of them coming from other countries in Asia, a lot of countries in Southeast Asia like Malaysia and Vietnam. So I think what Cineva is trying to do here by filing Section 201, which allows them to encompass the entire world, is just say, look, imports are the problem. It's not just imports from China, and we'll see whether they succeed. And so Cineva is basically saying to the president, uh, let's test your policy on trade here. Uh, you know, this president has never really mentioned solar other than to disparage the industry or to make offhanded remarks about how uh, it doesn't work. But now all of a sudden solar could be integral to the president's execution of his stated trade policy. It'll be interesting to see. I could imagine a couple of different things happening. One would be this stays quiet for everybody who's not in the solar industry as it goes through the ITC process. So for the next six months or so, you know, we know about it and pay a lot of attention to it. But you never hear about it in mainstream media or from the president. And then if it gets to the president's desk, if that actually happens, then it becomes a big story. Or because this could be the first major trade action of the Trump administration, you could imagine it getting elevated sooner. I guess we're just going to have to wait and find out. Well, let's get to what we uh, came here to talk about this week. And we're going to discuss Another piece of analysis from you and Attila Toth. So last year, the Wall Street Journal issued an op-ed from its editorial board, and they called Rooftop Solar regressive political income distribution. That The less fancy way of saying that is rich people are installing solar and poorer people are paying for it. So you wanted to test that assumption. What did you and Attila actually do to test it? Well, this has always been a bit of a frustration for me, which is that there, as somebody who kind of works with data for a living, there's never really been great publicly available data on the income distribution of solar customers, residential solar customers. Uh, and so despite the fact that that question has come up a fair bit in political and regulatory debates, the one that you referenced, Wall Street Journal wrote that editorial uh, while net Nevada was going through its net metering dispute, right? And it came up in some of the other net metering disputes in other states as well, where one side would just sort of assert that, well, solar tends to be for wealthy people and poorer people are paying for it. Solar industry would disagree with that, and nobody was really bringing a whole lot of data to the table. So it's always been a gap in my mind. And there have been some other pretty good attempts to try to answer that question, um, one from Center for American Progress, one from Kavala Analytics, and, and they've been pretty good. The limitation on those has been that the data that is publicly available basically only goes down to the zip code level. So you don't actually know in those data sets who's installing solar. You just know how much solar there is uh, in a given zip code. And the issue with that is that there's pretty wide distribution of incomes within a given zip code. So that's always been frustrating to me, and I ran across a different piece of analysis that Attila had done using PowerScout's data and methodology, which we talked about with him, that looked at the political leanings of solar customers and realized that if he could look at political leanings, he could also probably look at income distribution. So we've been working together for the past few months putting together this analysis that basically um, uses a pretty big sample of actual solar customers, actual solar households, representing about a little over 500,000 individual solar households at about 41% of the national solar market, uh, and looks at their income distribution to try to figure out how wealthy solar customers actually do tend to be. 
Yeah, it's certainly a super important question. So let's get into it and uh, hear our conversation with Attila Toth, the CEO of PowerScout. Great. Well, let's start by talking about what we did in the study that we put together, Attila, uh, specifically the data that we were trying to gather. As I mentioned in the intro, it's always been challenging for people to try to figure out the solar income distribution because there wasn't great data on who the actual households were that had solar. Uh, so you have a, a sort of solution to that, which is by using satellite imagery and what you've deemed your proprietary convolutional neural network machine learning algorithm, which sounds like something from a pitch deck in Silicon Valley. So can you explain exactly what that algorithm does and how it allowed us to identify solar households? It actually sounds like something from Terminator, like Skynet. <laughs> <laughs> it, may be, it may be out of a pitch deck, but it does work. So how does it work? Convolutional neural networks is a fancy name for a machine learning algorithm for computer vision. Um, this is the exact same algorithm that Tesla is using for self-driving cars or Facebook is using for the auto tech feature when they do uh, facial recognition. So what we have done is we used this technology to determine on satellite imagery which of the roofs have solar and which don't have solar. So first we had to train the models to understand what a roof is, right? How do you tell apart a roof from a basketball court? And then we have to tag images, hundreds of thousands of images with solar on the roof and without solar, on the, without solar right? So we had to teach uh, what is the difference between a solar panel and a sunroof? What is the difference between a solar panel and the solar, ther solar thermal, like a pool heater? Once we have done this, then we unleash this algorithm on um, uh, hundreds of thousands of uh, satellite images. Once we, have, once we have all these images, right, then we looked, then we matched that to income data that we have procured from consumer marketing companies. At the intersection of those two databases, so we had the solar roofs and then we have the, we have the income data, we have identified about 520,000 homes that we know have solar and we have income data for. Then at the end, we used GTM's research, research's data on total market size for the four markets that we have done this an analysis to make sure that our sample size is statistically significant. Right, so here's where we landed in this analysis, having run through all those satellite images through the convolutional neural network model and attaching that to income data. We ultimately, as Attila said, we identified a little over 520,000 individual residential solar households. So that, uh, and we only were only looking at four states just to limit the number of satellite images that we had to address. So that's California, New Jersey, Massachusetts, and New York. Um, those four states, of course, being big residential solar states. So in aggregate, they represent a big portion of the overall market. So we specifically identified about 62% of all the solar installations in those states or about 41% of all installations nationwide. So we think that's a pretty representative sample, at least of those four states, uh, that allows us to come to some broader conclusions about the income demographics of solar customers. So let's talk a little bit about the findings. Um, and then I think we also want to address some of the limitations of this analysis. And we want to talk about what we would have liked to have been able to do if we could, and what we 
we might want to do in the future. But first order question uh, is, is it true what the solar industry tends to say, which is that most solar customers are middle income households? Yes. Yeah, so what we have found, what we have found from the study, is that middle and high income households are overrepresented in the solar sample. So uh, about eighty seven percent of the solar sample uh, that we have identified, the five hundred twenty thousand households, have fallen in the middle and high income categories. Contrast that to seventy five percent in the general population. So they are overrepresented. Low-income uh, households uh, seem to be underrepresented. Uh, we have uh, found about 13% of, uh, uh, of households falling in, in those income brackets in our solar sample versus 25% in the general population. So the, the findings here are a little bit nuanced, right? Because there's a couple of different ways to look at what we, what we ended up discovering. One is the the way that you just described it, which is true, which is that we found pretty universally that solar households skew somewhat higher income than the general population. As you said, if you're looking at low income, and in this case, defining low income as, as having household income below $45,000 a year, um, there are, there's a, a smaller proportion of those than there are in the general. So a smaller proportion of solar households in that demographic than there is in the general population. On the other hand, uh, it is it appears also to be true that the vast majority of solar customers are what you might call middle income. So we're defining that being between forty five thousand and one hundred fifty thousand dollars a year in annual household income. So that's true about, about you know, it 70%. skews wealthier. Yeah, about seventy percent in the solar households, sixty five percent in the general population. So it skews a little bit higher income, uh, but not to say that it is only rich people. I think that would also be a false statement based on based on the data that we gathered here. The other thing that I thought was interesting in the findings here was specifically the demographic that seems to have gone solar the most, which is households with income between $100,000 and $150,000. So you might call those like upper middle income households, that's where you see the biggest difference, where it's like 25% of solar households, but only something like 17% of all households. And I wonder, Attila, as you guys are doing this consumer marketing for solar companies, are they targeting that demographic specifically, the sort of upper middle income type? Or does it just turn out to be that that's who goes solar? When when we are targeting and homeowners to go solar, income is one factor that we look at. Above and beyond income, there are multiple other factors such as education level, such as uh, an outside in estimation of the electric bill, such as roof orientation, where again, convolutional neural networks come into place because we understand the potential of solar that you can harvest from that roof. So what we do is we build a propensity model where income is one variable. But yes, I agree with you that the outcome tends to be that in the top two deciles, so the ninth and the 10 decile, which is usually across the United States, six and a half times more likely to adopt solar than the median, yes, we do find that those customers 
tend to be in the $100,000 and $150,000 range predominantly. We'd like to take a moment to extend a big thank you to our sponsor, AES Energy Storage. AES Energy Storage is a world-leading provider of grid-scale battery storage projects. AES Corporation owns $36 billion in energy assets and serves electricity to over 9 million people worldwide. Ten years ago, AES set up its battery business. Since then, the cost of installing grid-scale batteries has dropped nearly 90%, thanks to more efficient installation techniques, lower-cost hardware, and better lithium-ion batteries. This same trend took hold in the computer industry, where rapidly declining data storage costs revolutionized our digital networks. Lithium-ion batteries are now bringing data networks' resiliency and responsiveness to the electricity network by enabling multiple hours of storage. The grid is changing. Fast. And AES Energy Storage is helping utilities harness the power of battery-based energy storage to make the electric power system cleaner, more flexible, and more reliable. Visit aesenergystorage.com slash interchange to learn more. That's aesenergystorage.com slash interchange. Another thing that I thought was interesting that was one of the more surprising findings in this data as I was looking through it was specifically about low-income customers. So it is true that we found that low-income customers are somewhat underrepresented or low-income households are somewhat um, underrepresented. There are, you know, fewer of them have gone solar than exist. Um, but it was still a pretty big number just to throw some data out there. So we were estimating that of the sample that we found in those four states, about 13% of all the solar customers were what you might call low-income households. Again, uh, annual household income below $45,000 a year. That 13 would equate to, assuming that that's a representative sample just across those four states, that would equate to about 530 megawatts of low-income solar, again, in California, Massachusetts, New Jersey, and New York. So just to kind of place that in the market for you, uh, the Obama administration, right toward the end of Obama's tenure as president, uh, put out this, what was supposed to be sort of an ambitious goal to get one gigawatt of low-income solar installed. Uh, and in the U.S., the entire U.S., uh, by 2020. And based on our data, we're suggesting that, you know, there might already be half of that in place just in these four states. And so while low income was somewhat underrepresented, to me, this was surprisingly high that you would have, you know, something like over 100,000 low-income solar households in those four states. There are some great organizations like Grid Alternatives that have been installing for low-income customers for a long time. But I'm just curious, either of you guys, were you surprised at either how high or how low that number was? Honestly, I, I wasn't surprised. And, <clears throat> you know, we, we got we to gotta caveat this. There are, there are estimates in that number. But I wasn't surprised because the value proposition based on which solar has been sold in this country was save 15% or 10% on your energy bill. And that is the customer segment where the marginal savings represent the highest value. So I'm not surprised that they are responding to, uh, to, to this type of value proposition. I guess we should, at this point, take a step back and talk about why it's important to be trying to figure out income levels of solar customers you know there are a, f a few different reasons for it probably but i think 
that Power Scout's reasons are probably different than GTM's reasons. Um, for you, Attila, why is this question important to answer? Are you really just thinking about it from a customer acquisition perspective? Who should we be targeting and who is getting left out of the, the solar sales equation? Look, there is, a, there is a customer acquisition perspective to this, but there is also a policy perspective to this, right? Uh, as I said, we have a lot of data. We have hundreds of data points on each one of the, the, the customers. Uh, who has solar and what their income is, is only two out of the multiple hundreds that we have accumulated. So the reason why we have decided to make this available to policymakers, installers, investors, so we can inform them about the demographics of solar with the objective of, of making solar mainstream. This is not what our business is built on, right? Our business is built on, on, on leveraging all this data that we have about the consumers into propensity models. So who are the most likely to convert for solar, for electric vehicle charging, for, uh, for a battery storage system, or even an energy-saving roof, a smart roof? And how can we reach those people cost efficiently? So that's the reason why PowerScout exists. I, I don't know if this is too proprietary for you to answer, but if it's not, I'm interested. As you're designing those propensity models, let's just say for solar specifically, like who is the perfect customer? Who's what's the what's the breakdown of a customer who is the most likely person to go solar? It it depends, right? Uh, it depends by by geography. It depends by neighborhood. So the core of this is us being able to tag the customers who have already gone solar, right? And having hundreds of data points on them, then we can extrapolate in their uh, utility service territory, in their zip code, what are the common characteristics amongst them, right? So you could say, if you live in Menlo Park, California, and you have at least a 2,500 square foot home, uh, your uh, utility bill is at least $175. Your uh, demographics, your, your income level is at least $125,000 uh, per year. And your education level is at least college. You are seven times more likely to convert than the mean. So that's where you spend your marketing dollars, as opposed to spending your marketing dollars on a, on a very large population in a, in, a, in a mass marketing campaign. The data by itself, guys, is not valuable. What's valuable is how do you connect what you know about the physical profile of that home, what you know about the owners of that home, and how can you pro connect that to an online profile so you can do cost-efficient, micro-targeted digital marketing to those people? How do you think this will be interpreted by the solar industry? Um, GTM is obviously not a policy advocacy shop. We're just interested in answering this question and figuring out what the market looks like and what consumer adoption looks like. But inevitably, as you alluded to, Attila, this will become a piece of the policy discussion. So inevitably, people interpret it in different ways that you know benefit their interests. And I'm just curious if either of you have thought about the policy implications of these findings. Look, I think that there's something in this data for everyone. You know, if you want to cherry pick from 
our findings, you could make an argument in either direction. So if you want to say that solar is only for wealthy people, there's data in here suggesting that solar, as we said, skews higher income than the general population. So you could take that on its own and suggest that uh, that solar is only for wealthy people, though that's not entirely what the data shows. If on the other hand, you want to show that we've gotten really good at installing low income solar, there's also data in there that suggests that we've installed over 100,000 quite low income solar installations just in those four states, let alone in the entire country. So to me, my hope is that this is a pretty nuanced view of you know, the evolving demographics of solar and that it's not fodder for either side of this conversation. Oh, how naive, nuance, <laughs> you expect nuance. But guys, the data point that Shale mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, right? 70% of the solar homeowners that we have identified fall into the middle income category. I think that's also a, a very interesting data point that's, that shows that, you know, solar is, is becoming democratized over time, right? And I stress how important it is to rerun this analysis a year from now, right? Uh, we have seen exponential growth in the past year. We are expecting to see healthy growth this year as well. Uh, we should be rerunning and trends are going to tell the real story. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I would also just note that that finding you mentioned that the vast majority of solar households are middle income households, that is consistent with the other research that has been done, the stuff that was only at the zip code level, but nonetheless found something very similar, which was in their case, that the vast majority of, of the zip codes that have a lot of solar are middle income zip codes. So I think there's a, a pretty good preponderance of evidence to suggest that portion. One more point I would like to make, and maybe this is to the to the question prior to the policy question, Stephen, which is like why there are differences. I believe that neighborhood effects have also had an impact in magnifying um, certain demographics in this data. Let me explain what that means. So you're uh, talking about word of mouth? Uh, not just word of mouth. You're driving around in your neighborhood and you're seeing solar in your neighborhood. People who are of similar background, similar income, live in the same neighborhood. So those neighborhoods that had early adopters early on benefited from a neighborhood effect that has magnified the adoption of solar by similar demographics. And NREL, NREL has put out a very good study about this. Yeah, there's also some research on that from uh, UT Austin, from uh, Dr. Varun Rai, that's really good. That there's, there's ample evidence of neighborhood effects and solar adoption. So that is a good point too. And we are seeing that in our data, right? We are seeing that um, <clears throat> solar adoption tends to be very concentrated by, by neighborhood. I just want to throw one thing out there, which is uh, something is wrong with rich people in New Jersey. So of our four states, three of the four states had a high, at least an equal or higher proportion of solar households among the wealthiest families. This is households with, with uh, income of over $250,000 a year. So in California, that's 10% of solar households as opposed to 5% of the general population. Massachusetts, 4% in each case. New, New York, 6% of solar households and 4% of the overall population. But for some reason, in New Jersey, there's a lower proportion of solar households that make over $250,000 a year than there is in the overall population, which means that uh, 
New Jersey, very wealthy people are disproportionately not going solar. So it, for our rich New Jerseyan listeners, get your act together. <laughs> we are getting closer to figuring out who is buying solar, and it's not just for the rich. We can answer that question now. Shale, how can people get this report? Go to GTM. Uh, it's available. There's an article up. You can get the link there. You can also go to the GTM Research website, gtmresearch.com. There's a download link there. Um, or you can tweet at Steven. Attila Toth is the CEO of Power Scout, and uh, we really appreciate you coming on the interchange and co-writing this report, which is free on the GTM website. It's called How Wealthy Are Residential Solar Customers, Household Income, and Solar Adoption in the U.S. Attila, we appreciate your time. Thank you very much for your partnership, guys. Shale Khan is my co-host. He is our senior vice president here at GTM. I am Stephen Lacey, GTM's editor-in-chief. You are listening to The Interchange. Our weekly conversation on the global energy transformation will catch you next time. Thanks for being with us.